You're listening to Modern Marketing, a podcast brought to you by Influicity. At Influicity, we build brand communities that drive revenue. Learn more at Influicity.com. On today's episode, Influicity CEO John Davids talks with Sherry Chesborough, Senior Manager of Commercial Strategy at Neostrata. Sherry, please share your first insight. Okay. So I feel like my first insight kind of just stems from, I've been in marketing for, my goodness, here's the age thing coming in, almost 20 years. And I've worked in a number of industries. And I think there have been amazing campaigns, campaigns that we talk about around the water cooler, if you will. And truthfully, I think we're losing some of that shine that we used to have with storytelling. And I think my insight here is really around, we get so hyper-focused on the best practices that I think we're leaning too far into them and losing some of that creativity. And you can almost take a look at, I'd say 50% or more of ad campaigns or assets that you see out there that are checking the boxes. Branding at second zero, we're going to have somebody smiling within about zero to three seconds. Everything's extremely short form content. And I think the short form content makes sense, but I think within that we've lost that art of storytelling. And I think when we talked before, I shared with you some, some great examples that I love too, by when we're stuck to following these best practices that are given to us by the big media companies like Meta or Google, or that's kind of it, um, <laughs> Meta and Google. And then we, we, you know, we look at them later and we're like, well, couldn't this have been better? And then we start to challenge ourselves to do better. But when you're in the moment and you just have to check those boxes, it's kind of where things start to fall a little flat. So... So what do you mean? Let's just get into that a little more. When you say check the boxes, give our listeners an example. Like, What are two or three boxes that you need to check? Well, first is always branding at second zero. That is, like, have your brand right up front. So if you think about an old TV ad that used to be so great and actually tell a story, you might not get to the brand and the punchline until the end. Now we have such short attention spans and they want to make sure you're getting that awareness that they put it like have your logo or your brand right up front. I think where that checkbox, I would say, is difficult because sometimes when you're Adapting an asset from before, you're creating something new, that can look like just putting a physical logo on the screen, even versus like true product integration, which I think is much more authentic. And I myself will be scrolling through whichever feed it would be. And if it's a branded ad, I will scroll past. That logo doesn't catch my attention the same way a story might. So branding a second zero, like I said, a smiling face or like somebody looking happy within the first zero to three seconds big giant supers and the sound off environment and creating something that like works for every single person. So you're kind of creating content for the lowest common denominator, not necessarily for what's right for the communication or the story or the asset. So those are the three that always come to mind. And they're not necessarily bad in any way, but when you start to layer them all in together, you end up with a formula of what creative will look like. And that phrase you you just used, which is programming for the lowest common denominator, that almost reminds me of television from the 70s or the 80s. You know, in an environment where you have three shows on the air, you basically have to program that or for, okay, what's going to be the most palatable and least offensive for 50 million people? And today, that would be crazy because really you're programming, if you're talking about entertainment, you're programming for like the 200,000 people that are really going to love this or the 50,000 people that are going to be into this. And, you know, a big event might be like, hey, let's make this palatable for a million or two million people. And so when you say like, we're creating a product or we're creating a piece of advertising that has to appeal to everybody, you're diluting it to the point where it's probably going to appeal to nobody. Even the people that are into it are going to be like, eh, this is not the greatest thing ever for me. And that's what that's how I personally feel. And I know there's, there's data points to prove me otherwise, right? This is a personal opinion. But I think the other interesting piece is 
we might not be necessarily appealing or resonating, but we're checking the box. By checking all those boxes, we're also checking the boxes on metrics. So yes, we have strong brand awareness because people remember that they saw our ad. But when you look at it, and if that's a requirement to have branding at second zero, you're kind of stacking the deck a little bit when you talk about the actual metrics that are going to justify whether or not you saw the ad. Well, of course you saw the ad because you scrolled past it, whether or not you paid attention. So it comes down to like the next layer of questions of like, sure, is your ad reaching everybody? And that's more of like a pay to play piece of the pie when we're talking about media. But did they resonate with it? Did they understand it? Did that actually compel them to click through to view more, to learn more, to buy, to shop? Are they going to have your brand actually top of mind when they're making that purchase decision? Or is it just we've checked the boxes and the metrics are going to look strong because we have X number of reach frequency and brand awareness metrics that are saying good job. So it's a bit of a, a disconnect for me and like what's really making an impact and then what we're doing and that you can make anything look good depending on which way you splice and dice the data. Sure. The example you gave before the mics heated up was Ryan Reynolds, which I yeah. think is a great example. And we can talk Ryan Reynolds or Kim Kardashian, or there's there's so many to talk about. But you mm -hmm. talked about how Ryan Reynolds can whip up an ad. And it's got a very different flavor from an ad that would come from a big, big company X. Can you talk a, a bit about that? Yeah. The Mint Mobile stuff, I think, is fantastic. And there's one asset, one spot specifically, where he starts comparing the cost of mobile to the cost of another good. And so he starts pouring liquid on the phone and saying like, this is gonna work. And it's funny, like, but it's not instantly mint mobile in your face. It's not, it's just him standing there with another guy talking about the price of mobile is ridiculous. Everything keeps getting more expensive, but we don't believe in that. We're gonna keep our prices as low as we can. And that's the, the whole premise of his mobile network. And he owns it. And he also owns the advertising agency that built the ads, yeah. he's in the ads. So like he's controlled all of this, but he does it in a really authentic way. He's funny, he's pithy and quick and witted, but he does it in an, I would almost call it old school where he wants to tell a story. He's making a point. He draws a comparison from a completely different industry to the mobile industry. You wouldn't accept this. Why would you accept higher mobile prices? We won't increase your mobile prices. That's the best example I can come like share just quickly because it got everybody talking. I can not necessarily tell you the same of like stuff that is maybe even more relevant to me. I don't have Mint Mobile, but I remember the ad. And if I could have Mint Mobile, maybe I would. It's just not available in my area. But it's one of those things where he tells a story and there's a meaningful connection. You understand the proposition of what their service is. You're entertained by him. It's memorable. And so it resonated with me much more than most of the ads that you kind of flip through and see on the social platforms nowadays. It's getting the attention without using a, I'll just say the term, like a cheap tactic. So it's like, I'm getting your attention yeah. because you're genuinely interested in like, hey, why is this movie star pouring this water on the phone? Like what's going on right now? Right. Versus like, hey, here's our brand in your face. And it's like, okay, well now I know Mint Mobile, but like, I don't really care about it as much. So right. it's straddling those two pieces. So then how do you, what I'm always curious about these days is you have these D2C startups with the razors or the creams or the lipsticks. How do you think about competing with them? And they're like, they're all storytelling. I mean, you could make the argument the products might not even be the best, but the storytelling is just off the charts. How do you mm -hmm. think about competing with them in a big organization? It's tough. I think right now I've been spending the last few months as I've been onboarding to this new role at Neostrata, um, trying to figure out what is that storytelling aspect of the brand. And we often do look to work with influencers and PR to try and figure out how to do that in an authentic way. And I think for myself, it is putting yourself in the shoes of the audience and really trying to figure out, would I even care if I saw this? 
Now, sometimes there are just, we need to drive awareness of this brand, this product, this launch. And so you do kind of put out whatever you kind of, whatever's within our wheelhouse. And it's not always, I would say, best in class, but when we're trying to really move the needle and trying to resonate, it's finding those authentic stories. It's finding somebody else maybe who uses our products in a real way and can tell our brand story in their own words. And so there are complexities with that. We have regulatory and compliance and legal that we have to make sure we're saying all the right things. So you have to try and let loose of your own brand and hope that your brand essence can come through the voice of an influencer. And I I use that probably as the best way in the current climate that we can do that, where people will stop and maybe pay attention. And if we talk about the Mint Mobile thing, Ryan Reynolds arguably is an influencer in his own right as a celebrity and as a public person. So we find other people, everyday people, and I find that to be the most compelling. And there's great examples in the beauty industry from our competitors, from company brands that are within Kenview, from Neostrata included, that we've had really great success with. But it's about trying to find those right pieces, finding the right person, finding somebody who likes the product. Because we've also been down the path where you work with somebody and then they come back to you and say, I don't actually really like your product. And they want to be authentic. So as long as they're being real and we can be real, I think that's where there's some magic that can happen, where it's not just another, here's some woman putting cream on her face, here's a claim, and then here's the brand. And there's a very formulaic approach to certain things, whereas influencers, you get that that flavor of authenticity and somebody's voice to tell the story. This podcast is brought to you by Influicity. Since 2015, we've been building brand communities that drive revenue. First, we did it through influencers. Then we added podcasts. Today, we work with world-class brands to build, optimize, and run breakthrough programs that create and capture demand. It's time to stop renting your influence and start owning it. Learn more at Influicity.com. I think the other place where the kind of influencer world and the D2C startup world get a lot of attention is the fact that it's buzzy, it's sexy, it's interesting, it's on social, so you're seeing it. But what they don't have and the big advantage that you guys do have is distribution, relationships going back decades, 100 years in some cases. So that's something that it seems like you can lean on a lot harder as well. And I'm wondering what kind of advantage and and is, is there a real advantage in having in being in all the stores and having the the better shelf place in 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 appearing higher in SEO. Is that something that that, that you think about too? Oh absolutely. And I think we're leaning more and more into just like we call it physical availability and like being wherever a consumer might need you, we are there. And that's kind of the idea. I've worked in the cough cold industry like cough cold segment. I've worked in wound care. And that's true for everything. So when we talk about placements and in of cough cold products, we want to be in every store because when you're sick and you want to go get something, if we're not there, you'll choose something else because you're in a moment of need. So especially in those types of like distress type purchases, it is important. And as the importance of that shelf set is huge. And it's what a lot of brands have done. And I can say brands I've worked on can take credit for it and say, we've really helped our shelf set by building a, a very broad portfolio with every possible need state you could possibly think of. We've got stuffy nose and dry cough and wet cough and phlegm and all in ones and all the, all the products that we can possibly have. And that shelf set, when you walk into any pharmacy and you see it, it does stand out. And our brands do stand out and longstanding brands have that equity to help. And it, it does. I think there's a lot of shiny objects when you talk about like more of the D2C startups, those niche brands that pop up and say, oh, we're not even going to advertise because we don't need to. We're just going to be word of mouth. And those last so long. But then a lot of those you start to see sunset because where did they eventually go? Did they get bought up by a bigger company or what was their plan in the long run? But 
they're fun, shiny objects that everybody's like, oh, we want to be like them. And sometimes it's really nice to work for a big corporation that we want to understand what they're doing, but we still want to do it our way. And we know that we do have the strength of 50 years of science that have created these products. We've had long-term relationships with retailers. Consumers love us. And so it's how do we make sure that we're being authentic to who we were, but also progressing in a modern way so that new consumers can find us. And that's kind of the, the goal of everybody at the end of the day is more people need to see you, more people to under, need to understand your proposition, sell more products and keep growing. Totally. I was chatting with a friend who ran for a long time the Philly cream cheese brand, which of course yeah. is the, the biggest cream cheese. And she was saying, I was talking, we were talking, we were having a similar conversation and she was saying, you know, we have like 90 plus percent market share and we are everywhere. Anywhere you go to buy cream cheese, we are there. And so for someone else to come in with like cooler advertising and better TikTok account and this and that, like it's fine, but we have 90% market share. Like, what are you going to do? It's going to take years if you are, yeah. are you know, are going to try to erode that because even if somebody likes your product better, we are synonymous with cream cheese. And so right. I think there's a lot to be said there. It, it's a lot of fun to talk about how these emerging brands rise up, but it does take a lot of the time in the physical world to actually dis disrupt a brand. Absolutely. And we've seen some really great success stories in the beauty industry of brands that only ever launched on Amazon. If you go to Amazon and look for Maritime Naturals, that is not a brand you're going to see anywhere else, but it is a very strong seller on Amazon. And they've been there. I want to all say, because I don't know, but like since the beginning of Amazon, they've just been there and it's from the East coast of Canada. It's a great brand. The products are great and they have a niche following and they've maintained that. And that really works for them, but we're not, I haven't seen them since I started working in the beauty industry over the last five, six years. I haven't seen them expand beyond Amazon. They know what they know. They have their following that works for them. They're a, I'd say a relatively small player, but they have really great case studies on how they've done so well. So you kind of pick your swim lane and you own it and you know what you know, and they do it really well. And then there's other big brands that, and a lot of brands have tried different things. I even remember a few years ago, can't remember the name specifically. I think it was called L'Oreal Seed or something, but they started almost like their own niche brand within L'Oreal. And I didn't really see it take off. I couldn't tell you because I don't remember. I don't see it now. But I think there's been times where we've all, we've all like, I think in the industry, big corporations have thought maybe we need to be that. And I think in the long run, you start to see, like you said, like there's that trend. The Philly example is a great one where great that you're here, but can you, do you have the staying power? Do you have the lasting shelf space? Are you going to be able to compete with us in the long run, especially against something that has 90% market share? I was there when I was working on Polysporin of all things. Like, sure, Polysporin has the market share in Canada. There's a competitor that comes in, but it's not going to be the same. And we have the strongest household penetration. So it's just like, that's what's most important. Everywhere that somebody's looking for us and there's no losing that strength in the long run. Yeah. I remember there was a stat I heard that Johnson & Johnson, which, which it was called up until recently, had like presence in 90% of every cabinet. Is that what the number yeah. is? <laughs> I actually, I, yes, probably. It might even be higher. When you think about the breadth of the brands that we have from Tylenol through to Band-Aid to Neutrogena, to like you're talking big, heavy-hitting brands, Johnson's Baby, that have been around forever. And I can go in my cabinet, whether I worked at J&J &J or not, there's always been something from the company in my house. And I think that kind of goes for everybody. And as we've transitioned to Kenview, a big part of what we sort of stand for is caring fiercely. And it's like the everyday care is sort of the underlying tone of what we stand for. And it is because there's a lot of things like there's big products that are going to help save lives. Band-Aids aren't saving lives, but they make your everyday care a little bit easier, right? So it's 
there's a lot of meaning in that because we do touch people every single day. People rely on whether it's pain medications or digestive health or skin care, sun care. There's a lot of meaning to what we provide. And I've seen the impact of during COVID when we had issues with supply, you see the negative impact on consumers when we aren't there. And so it almost motivates the team to like, make sure those types of things don't happen when it's in your control. So it's an amazing company to work for. And we, we do things that are good every day, even if we're not literally saving lives. We, you know, it's, it feels good. Yeah. I got to say, I have a four-year-old and there's not a day that goes by that she doesn't want a Band-Aid on her. So it it, it, it really is something that, that, that people touch every single day. Let yeah. me ask you one more question. So you are working with a relatively small or niche brand or, or whatever you want to call it inside this gargantuan company. And you're obviously set up for growth. What are you thinking about in terms of growing a brand that's it's already got, got a good size, but has a lot more room to grow? Honestly, I think the top two would be awareness and retailer diversification, I'll call it. So right now, a lot of our business goes through one specific retailer and it makes a lot of sense. But as the consumer trends change, as people's shopping behavior change post-COVID, as people are looking for products in many different places, we kind of need to increase that physical availability. It can't just be primarily in the Shoppers Drug Mart Beauty Boutique, which it is right now. We want to help to grow that business in Shoppers and the, the breadth that we have there by supporting it with products in other places. So it may be some disruptive places. Maybe, you know, growing in Amazon is really important to me, especially with the power and the strength of Amazon search. So that will, it's kind of like using retail to drive awareness because we are a niche brand in a big company. So our budgets aren't unlimited. We're not the Tylenol brand, which I love Tylenol and spent some time working with them, but we don't have that size of budget. So how can we be really smart and nimble and entrepreneurial kind of with a startup mindset that how can we get our product in front of the most people to drive trial awareness and household penetration and those repeat purchases. Once you've tried Neostrata products, Genuinely, and I'm not, I mean, I am saying this because I work on the business, but as a personal user of the products, once you start, you kind of don't stop because you realize that there is a product out here that will work for me. That's actually going to drive, make a difference in my skincare routine and you see the impact. And so you kind of get committed to it. And I think that's one thing with skincare that's really important. So it comes down to me to like the awareness. So driving that mental and when am I going to buy something that I'm thinking of my brand of Neostrata and when I get to where I want to buy it, that it's physically available in the place that it needs to be so that I can complete that purchase. Very cool. Well, we will be watching. Yes, lots to come. It's an interesting and exciting shift to be on right now as we're looking at what's up for Canada, what's up globally. It's a really amazing brand that uh, I think we, we're all working in the same direction on. So it's good. It's really good. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Sherry. This was great. Yeah, it was great to catch up. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for listening to Modern Marketing. This podcast is brought to you by Influicity, empowering marketers to build customer communities that drive revenue. We create massive demand via social, influencer, content, paid media, and of course, podcast. Learn more at Influicity.com.